You may be seated. You can actually Google this online, but you can, you can access photos that are taken or have been taken from the space station. And there's one, one photo that really uh, struck me. It was a photo of the Korean Peninsula taken at night from the space station. And it shows the southern half of the peninsula, South Korea, just aglow with lights everywhere. And yet, the northern part of the entire peninsula is all but dark. I think this is a striped contrast between light and dark, between a totalitarian government and a democratic republic, between oppression and freedom, between atheism and a growing church. I think it helps us understand the power of the gospel to transform culture. It shows us the power of the gospel working through individual Christians who are faithful in their sphere of influence in their calling, either as under authority or as one being in authority, as they seek to be faithful in service to Christ. I do not believe the Bible teaches that Christians or even the church transforms culture. That's Jesus' job. But I believe the scriptures do teach that Jesus uses the means of the church, the means of individual Christians, enabling them to be faithful in service to him in the sphere of influence in which he has placed them. And through them, he works and brings light out of darkness, brings freedom out of oppression, brings a growing church out of atheism or dead spirituality or irreligion. Do you believe the gospel is powerful to transform? Do you believe the gospel is powerful to transform you? Do you believe the gospel is powerful to so transform you, to so enable you to be faithful that you would be the means of Jesus Christ to further his kingdom here on earth? Do you believe the gospel is powerful to transform. Well, Paul does, and he speaks of that in a very unusual context today as we look at bondservants and masters, that social relationship. Now, just as a, a reminder, this passage today, as well as the previous two sections, are all part of what Paul teaches in chapter 5 and verse 21 of the book of Ephesians, where he says one of the evidences of being filled with the Spirit is that Christians are mutually submissive to one another. And we first looked at this in the context of marriage, that husbands and wives go about fulfilling their roles in the power of the Spirit being mutually submissive to one another. And then we look at the parent-child relationship as the parent and child relationship is still under that heading, mutual submission, and the parent's authority and the child's obedience as the husband's authority and the wife's obedience 
as they are filled with the Holy Spirit, they're, they're able to mutually submit to one another and fulfill the various roles that God has assigned to them. And now today, this third social relationship is given, bond servants and, and masters. And we'll, we'll see how this directly applies to you and me today, even though we do not have the institution of slavery in our country any longer, and thankfully so. And this really, to me, summarizes what Paul is teaching here in this passage. Christians are to faithfully fulfill their obligations as either bondservants or masters, those under authority or those in authority, in service to Christ, who is the true master. Let me say that again. Christians are to faithfully fulfill their obligations as either bondservant or master, in service to Christ, who is the ultimate, the true master. And so we want to begin looking at this passage today by, by working through the cultural context in which Paul delivered this. It's very important because we need to understand what, how does this bond-servant-master relationship apply to people like you and me in our day. And I want to show you that, that it does. The cultural context then meaning back in Paul's day in the first century, for the instructions that Paul gives for both Christian bondservant and Christian master is in the context of the lawfully constituted institution of slavery in the first century. We just simply have to acknowledge that as the fact. The institution of slavery that is most familiar to us, the form that was expressed in the 17th and 19th centuries here in our own country and also in parts of Europe, is to be condemned, even though it's part of our history and regrettably so, it is and was a moral evil. And the Bible condemns it. Though in the day, during the 17th and 19th centuries, oddly enough, Christians tried, tried to say that slavery was justified by appealing to the Scriptures. But that was wrong. The Scriptures condemned that form, condemns that form of slavery. In the Old Testament, man-stealing that we read about in Exodus 21 was not only prohibited, but the ones who stole a man, that is, the one who forcibly enslaved another man, was subject to the death penalty. And then in the New Testament, the, the Apostle Paul speaks about forcible enslavement being against Scripture and it being condemned. He speaks about enslavers, those who would forcibly enslave others. That, that particular sin being, being listed amongst a whole host of gross sins by those who, he says, are lawless and disobedient with the ungodly and sinners with the unholy and profane. In other words, those who enslave forcibly who are enslavers are sinners in 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. In Revelation 18, for example, the slave trade is spoke about in that passage as being part of the reason Babylon fell because of this moral evil 
of slavery. And so the type of slavery that we're familiar with as part of the sad history of our own country is condemned in the Scriptures. The overall teaching of Scripture is for men and women to be free, but, and this is important for today, not all forms of slavery are directly condemned. They may not be condoned, but they're not directly condemned in the Scriptures. The Old Testament forbid cruelty to those who were enslaved, but it allowed some forms of slavery. For example, in Genesis 15 and Leviticus 25, there the, the, the context of both of those passages is the fact that it was allowable for Israel to impose slavery upon nations that they conquered. Nations who is described in Leviticus whose cup of iniquity was full. Another example of slavery in the Old Testament is that a burglar who stole and could not make restitution would become a slave uh, to, to pay off the debt, Exodus 22. The Old Testament set limits to slavery. The, in, the indentured servant, for example, was to be emancipated in the seventh year, in the year of Jubilee, so there were limits there. A slave that was emancipated, was not to be sent out with, with no provisions. He was to be given provisions by that former master so that he can make a living and, and have what he needed uh, for life. Though an indentured servant could choose to stay with the master if, if he loved the master and the master loved him. And there are examples in Scripture where this actually happened. We find one in the New, New, New Testament. We also think of examples in the Bible of Masters who were beloved by their servants. An impoverished person who sold himself into slavery because he could not retire a debt was viewed less as a slave and more as a voluntary apprentice. In other words, the mindset of these forms of slavery were just different than what we're familiar with. And, and the cultural context of our passage today here in Ephesians chapter 6 is very important. Slavery in Paul's day in the first century was a lawfully constituted institution of the Roman government. Even though Paul and we can include Jesus did not condone this form of slavery, they did not condemn it. It is estimated that there were over six million slaves in the first century in the Roman Empire. In a city the size of Ephesus, it is also estimated that in the first century, one-third of that city's entire population would be classified as a bondservant with a master. And so this form of slavery that's the context of our passage today is different from the horrible moral evil of the 17th through 19th centuries that is part of our history. Given that, bond servants in both the Greek and Roman understanding had limited rights. They were subject to exploitation and cruelty. There's no doubt about that. There were some really bad masters <laughs> 
in the first century, and there were bond servants who suffered. But the general rule is this, that the bond-servant-master relationship was characterized more of that bond-servant being part of the family and having an integral part in the life of that family. The bond-servant was able to earn money in order to at some point hopefully save up enough to buy his freedom. In fact, the Apostle Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 7. Were you a bond-servant when called? Do you not... Do not be concerned about it, but if you can, gain your freedom. Avail yourself of the opportunity. Slavery, even in the ancient world, eventually died, and that's a good thing. We should all be against forms of slavery. But Paul's passion here is not to overturn a lawfully constituted institution, even though we would have wished that it never existed. But his passion is to focus on the spiritual order in the relationship of bondservants and master. How are Christian bondservants to live under the authority of their masters? And how are Christian masters to live and to rule over their bondservants? And I think what the Apostle Paul shows us is a recipe, if you will, is a plan, if you will, as a way, a means, an exhortation, a command for us to understand how we can be agents of transformation in the station that God has placed us by faithfully serving Christ in that place. Faithfully serving Christ as one under authority, faithfully serving Christ as one in authority. Ultimately, it is about one service to Christ, isn't it? In the various spheres where God has placed us. So how about today? We don't have the institution of slavery, so there's not a one-to-one correspondence of this, this particular context in Paul's day to our day, but Paul's message speaks directly to us. Paul shows us that there are those who are under lawfully constituted authorities then, and it's the same today. There are those who are the lawfully constituted authority. It was true then, and it is uh, today. And the question is, how are we to faithfully fulfill our obligations in service to Christ as we live under authority or live in authority, as employees and employer, as students and teachers, as citizens and magistrates, as church member and elder, and the list can go on. So you see, this really does apply to us today. There are lawfully constituted authorities. Paul just uses the institution of slavery in the Roman Empire as an example, but there are a host of examples in our day today. And so how are we to live then? under these authorities and as these authorities by faithfully fulfilling our obligations in service to Christ. And for those under authority, we're told in our passage today that it looks like obedience. The bondservant's real service 
is to render service to Christ. Look at verse 5. Bond servants, obey your masters as you would Christ. Verse 6, the slave is to obey, not to please the earthly master, but to please Christ. As a bond servant of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Then in verse 7, calls bond service to render service to their earthly masters as to the Lord and not to man. Our chief desire is to render service to Christ, even as we render service to man. And Paul's instructions are radical. Christian bond servants, you serve your earthly master as though you were actually serving Jesus himself as if he was standing before you as your master. Student, you fulfill your obligations under the authority of your teacher as if Jesus himself is at the head of the class. He is there in front of the class as your teacher. Employee, you fulfill your obligations to your boss as if Jesus himself is there in the office giving oversight of you as you go about doing your work. Citizen, you fulfill your obligations to the highest order as if Jesus himself is in charge of City Hall. Jesus himself is in charge of the state capitol. Jesus himself is in charge of Washington. And you know what? Even though it doesn't look like he is in charge of anything with regards to our government, he's in charge of it all. We've already read about it. We've already sung about it, right? But you be a citizen as if Jesus is there in the Oval Office governing this land. Church member, you fulfill your obligations as if, not Tim, not the rest of our elders, but Jesus himself is here at Covenant Presbyterian Church shepherding you, emailing you. I think Jesus can email, calling you praying for you. Do you get the picture? God sovereignly places us under authority to faithfully serve Christ to build the kingdom. Building the kingdom is his job. Our job is faithful service to Christ where he places us. And if we faithfully serve Christ, we will please our employer, we will please our teacher, we will please our government. Obedience then to one's lawfully constituted authority looks like this, the Apostle Paul says. Verse 5a, respect. He says we are to obey with fear and trembling. It means to respect the authority. The fifth commandment, honor, respect your parents' authority. And in, in reality, the full application of the fifth commandment is to respect and honor all authorities that have been placed over you. So respect is a way that we show obedience. Secondly, conscientiousness. In verses 5 and 6, we are to obey out of a sincere heart, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, doing the will of God from the heart. This, this, this means that we ful fulfill our obligations with devotion, honesty to the best of our ability, but more than anything else, that the motive of our heart is right. That yes, we want to please our bosses. Yes, we want to please our teacher. Yes, we want to please the elders here at Covenant. But more than anything else, what motivates us is to please Jesus. Because ultimately, He 
is our authority. And integrity, verse 7, tell us to render, uh, we're told to render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. And the term goodwill means we do our job, I think, the same as if uh, that we would do with people looking at us. We, we would do the same job if no one was looking at us. Isn't that really the simple definition of integrity? That what we do in private is no different than what we would do in public? I know when I worked at McDonald's in high school, <laughs> when the manager wasn't there, it was chaos. <laughs> Burgers were flying. Oh, my goodness. And by God's grace, I had enough in integrity, I suppose, that, that, I, that I tried, tried to uh, keep some order, but I had absolutely no, no, no power. It's amazing what happens when the eyes of the boss is off. But yet for the Christian, that should never, ever be the case. We should be so, we should have such integrity that the boss is happy to leave us alone. The teacher's happy to say, you just go sit over there and do your homework. I'm not even going to bother with you because you have integrity. You're going to do that homework as to the Lord, and I don't have to keep my eye on you. Think about the implications of that in society if Christian students, if Christian employees, if Christian church members had such integrity, and, we, and in Christ we're able to have that level of integrity. Where if no one is looking, we, we, we do our very best with the right attitude out of respect. The Christian employee, student, citizen, church member serves and is to serve at the highest level. Why? Because our calling is not to be faithful to an earthly master. Our calling chiefly is to be faithful to the master, to render service to Christ in every sphere of life. And the way we go about fulfilling our obligations under authority is to be regulated by that lofty truth that all of our service is to Christ. Think about that. But there are also those who are in authority. Faithfulness and service to Christ for those who are in authority, those who are that lawfully constituted authority, what, what, whatever that might be in any particular situation, looks like doing good to those who are subordinates. The well-known British novelist and lay theologian C.S. Lewis said something very interesting. He said this, quote, Mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. Aristotle said that some people were only fit to be slaves. I do not contradict him, but I reject slavery because I see no men fit to be masters. No men fit 
to be masters. And I believe Lewis is right. No men fit left to their own designs. No men fit left to operating out of their own sinful nature is fit to be master. And we don't have to look far to prove Lewis right, do we? Just look at history. Just turn on the news. The slave trade in years past, and there are expressions of that in our day today. Think of human trafficking that is such a scourge on our world uh, today. Totalitarian governments, all of these things, sad part of human history. But the reality is this, some Christians are called to be under authority and some Christians are called to be in authority. So though we would say that, yeah, Lewis is right, no men are fit to be in authority, yet God has established an authority structure. And the way these authority structures are to operate in the biblical sense is for those bond servants to faithfully fulfill their obligations in service to Christ under that authority and for those in authority to faithfully fulfill their obligations to Christ by doing good to those under their authority. So it is possible for a Christian to be fit to be an earthly master, to be an employer, to be a teacher, to be an elder, to be a lawful authority. And Lewis's point emphasizes the need for grace, the need for the gospel to work, to bring about true wholeness in that relationship of bondservant to master employee to employer, student to teacher, church member to elder, and so on. In verse 9, the Apostle Paul instructs authorities to do, to do the same to them. Well, what is he talking about in verse 9? To do the same to them. The same is what Paul has said in verse 8. God, and, and what Paul says in verse 8 is basically this, God will not ignore selfless service of the bondservant in doing good for his master. And he calls masters to do the same. That master, God will not ignore your selfless act of service in doing good for those under your authority. And the passage ends, at the very end of verse 9, with some of what J.C. read earlier, earlier from Leviticus about the fact that, that God does not show partiality. In other words, God does not treat the master any better or worse than he treats the, the bondservant. He treats all the same. He will honor selfless sacrifice of a bondservant as much as he will honor and not ignore selfless sacrifice of the master. And in some measure, it really isn't, the grand scheme of things, all that important if you're a bondservant or a master. As we understand God's giving and calling you to a station in life, what's important is, are you faithful in serving Christ in that position? I think Boaz is a wonderful example of a master who understood these principles that we find fleshed out here in the book of Ephesians. Boaz in the book of Ruth was cared for his, his bondservants, those under his charge, and he was generous 
uh, to them. And I think another example is, is what Paul is teaching in the book of Philemon. Philemon was a wealthy man in the Colossian church, and he was a slave owner. And one of his slaves, Onesimus, uh, ran away. And by God's sovereignty, Onesimus ran away to Rome. And Paul was introduced to him, or he was introduced to Paul. And, and through Paul's influence in this, this runaway slave's life, he was saved and brought to faith. And the book of Philemon is largely about the Apostle Paul encouraging Onesimus in this way. Onesimus, you have sinned against your master. As a Christian, you act differently. As a Christian, your obligation is to go back to him and confess. And he may be cruel to you, and maybe rightly so, but that's your duty. That's what it means for you to be in faithful service to Christ. You go back, confess, and repent, and plead upon his mercy. And the Apostle Paul also instructed Philemon, Philemon, you be merciful. You're a Christian. Your obligation is to forgive. Your obligation is to do good. Your obligation is to express your authority for the spiritual good of those under your authority. In this case, the runaway slave, Onesimus. I want us to pause and think about the radical nature of the gospel. This guy is in Rome, a good bit away from, the, from Philemon. And yet Paul says, as a Christian, you have an obligation to go back and suffer the consequences of your sin. And then he says to Philemon, as a Christian, you have an obligation to not do what the courts may call you to do or allow you to do, but to be merciful and to forgive. I mean, does the gospel really make a difference in our world today? Is it possible for the darkness to begin glowing with light? And I believe it is. A modern day story of Philemon is this. There was a teacher who had a class. And one of the, the students in this class took something that was the teacher's, put it in his pocket, and took it home. As mom was going through the student's laundry, she found the item. And she said, Sonny, what is this? And of course, the little guy confessed up that he stole that from the teacher. And the, teach, and the mother said to little Sonny, Tomorrow I will, take you, I will go with you, but you have to go to your teacher. You have to show her what you took. You have to confess it, and you have to ask her forgiveness. That is your obligation as a child that is part of a family that loves and serves Jesus. That is your obligation as a Christian. 
And so the next morning, mom drove Sonny, and Sonny goes up to the teacher. He has something to say, and so they go to a private place, and, and little Sonny takes out the object that he had stolen, and he said, I, I stole this from you yesterday, and I'm sorry, will you forgive me? That teacher had, had every right to express her authority in discipline, in rebuke, in making little Sonny feel even smaller than he had already made himself feel, by sending a note home, by sending little Sonny to the principal, all sorts of things. What did that teacher do? That teacher said, little Sonny, I forgive you. And little Sonny just melt, literally melted in, it, in the arms of his teacher, and they embraced. That's what Paul is teaching, is to be the relationship to those who are under a lawfully constituted authority and those who are the lawfully constituted authority. That for the Christian, it's a different relationship on a much higher plane where the one under authority does good for the employer and the one in authority does good for the subordinate. Think about your life. Think about the stations where God has called you and consider these instructions for bondservants and masters. May God so work in us that in this dark world, if it's possible... <laughs> for a photograph to be taken from the space station of our little lives that the sphere of our little influence might be glowing with the transforming power of the gospel in all of our relationships even employee, employer, student, teacher, citizen, government, church member, elder. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this word. It's challenging in so many ways. It's encouraging in so many ways. But it really is exciting. Because you've called us to live differently in our marriages. You've called us to live differently in our families. You've called us to live differently as those under authority and those in authority. And you're working all of this in such a way where your kingdom is is expanded, that, that, the, that, the, that the gospel transformation is lighting up the darkness in this world. Our job is to be faithful, give us grace, and we look with anticipation to what you will do in expanding your kingdom through the means of your people faithfully rendering service to you, O Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.